Welcome to the Campfire Conversation Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Kelly. Ask almost anybody who's been to summer camp, whether they be kids or staff members, and they'll tell you, it is awesome. They will also tell you through their words, but mostly through their actions, that they learn a ton while there too. As a longtime camp director, youth sport coach, and father to three growing young men, I know the lessons that we learn at camp can be hugely beneficial for all of us back home in the real world. So, each week, I'll spend some time around the digital campfire talking with professionals from inside and around the summer camp world. We'll share their lessons, their ideas, and their practices in a way that I hope will be immediately useful for your life back home. So, pull up a seat, get your marshmallow ready to roast, and let's spend some time learning together around the campfire. I've been learning from Dr. Chris Thurber since my first camping conference in 2002. He stood up in front of the audience with his bow tie and his jacket on, and I thought, really? What's this guy all about? And then he started to talk about separation anxiety and homesickness in ways that were both systematically researched and immediately actionable. I've continued to learn from Dr. Thurber at every opportunity, whether it's reading his many articles in the ACA Camping Magazine, reading his book, um, or engaging with him at conferences. Dr. Chris Thurber grew up in the wonderful little town of South Portland, Maine, which is a place that's kind of close to my heart, earned his undergraduate degree from Harvard, and then his PhD in clinical psychology at UCLA. From there, he went on to spend the last two decades as a staff psychologist working at Phillips Exeter Academy. All along, he's been returning to Camp Belknap as a senior staff member and also helping other camps and camp staff provide incredible summers to campers and staff members through his company's expert online training and camp spirit. Dr. Thurber recently wrote a fun and somewhat controversial article called Campocalypse, Seven Predictions for Summer Youth Programs. After reading his thoughts about cyborgs and the fall of the environment, unhinged minds, and a lot more, I had to get him around the campfire to learn about it. And yes, here's a spoiler alert. It's actually a very hopeful article. I hope you'll enjoy this very fun conversation with Dr. Chris Thurber. Dr. Chris Thurber, welcome to the campfire. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I, before we start, we, we have a very odd connection. I, I believe you grew up in South Portland, Maine. I did. I did. So my father was born and raised and was a Red Raider uh, uh, at South Portland High. Yeah. Um, and I spent every summer going to different little shops in South Portland to get sandwiches. There was a little place called Nano's right uh-huh. before we got on the bridge and served the best meatball sandwiches in, in, on earth. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, well, lots of good small uh, usually Italian or <laughs> Italian sort of distant, uh, folks that ran wonderful sandwich shops. And when I used to lifeguard at the South Portland Municipal Pool, I had an hour free for lunch and would promptly spend my entire paycheck on <laughs> a really delicious lunch. So a good Italian. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you being around the campfire with me. I have listened to you and learned so much from you over the course of the last 18 years that I've been in camp. Um, you're, I've always wanted to ask this question because you're, you're a person who's got, you have an undergraduate degree from Harvard. You've got a PhD in clinical psychology from the UCLA. Yes. You work at one of the most well-respected uh, schools in the world at Phillips Exeter. And yet you're a summer camp guy. <laughs> what, what, what's going on there? What's going on? Well, 
I, like you, like a lot of your listeners, recognize the potency of camp as a vehicle for positive youth development. And I think I first went to some day camps in Maine and had wonderful experiences and then a not so good experience that sort of made me pretty anxious about returning to camp ever. But my best friend was going to Camp Belknap, which is in central New Hampshire. And I missed him when he was gone during the summer. And he had me convinced that this was actually a wonderful experience. And so I started there in 1980 as a 12-year-old, my first overnight camp experience, and then uh, was a camper for three years and followed that with 33 summers on the staff. And yeah, it changed, right? Because I first fell in love with camp as a camper, um, again, like you and most of your listeners. And then when I was a psychology major at Harvard, I kept making rapid connections between what I was hearing in lectures or discussing in sections or reading in books with what I understood intuitively or through experiential learning about child development. And I really, my interest sort of morphed from, uh, you know, participant to a leader or counselor, and then to someone who became really committed to learning why this was such a powerful vehicle. And, uh, you know, as you know, my research in the nineties was on homesickness prevention and Mm -hmm. promoting kids adjustment to separation from home. And, uh, so that enabled me, you know, so it's, it's actually a big ploy. And now, now the cat's (laughs) out of the bag. I, you know, how did I get through graduate school and go to summer camp? Well, I get data, you know, uh, and so it just (laughs) good research project, right? Yeah. Uh, But you know, the, pithy answer to your question is that I keep becoming more enamored with the vehicle, uh, with the institution. And if you go back to the founding of camps in this country in the 1860s and 70s, it's not surprising that most camp owners and directors were school principals and other professional educators mm-hmm. is they they understood that there is this beautiful complement between a traditional classroom setting and uh, and summer you know take kids from being mostly inside to being mostly outside take them from mostly sitting to mostly running around take them from at least at the time you know 1860s mm-hmm. and maybe until i don't know John Dewey writing in the early 1900s mm-hmm. uh, from mostly memorizing to mostly figuring things out for themselves. And, and, and camps, as I've written about a lot, and maybe in the article we're going to talk about today, they haven't lost their luster and they also haven't lost their exquisitely important place in the holistic education of, mm-hmm. of young people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I go to academic conference and hear uh, about, how important it is to imbue the classroom with some social emotional learning, which is true. And I always want to just leap up and say, well, don't just do that. You also need to send them to camp, you know, there's a day camp or an overnight camp or whatever it is, because that's where you're not going to get social emotional learning as a kind of tokenistic add on like, yep, we do that too. But 
you're going to live it. And, you know, so that's why I just have become a kind of ambassador for the experience. Yeah. It's funny. I, I get asked often from our families to write recommendations for their children for a school or even for college, whatnot. Yeah. And I can never really talk about their academics because I don't know. And frankly, I, I don't, I don't really care. You know, I always talk about what kind of person is this and how much will that person help your community, whether it's a school or, or a college or a team or whatever it is, that they know what it means to be in community and to bring other people along with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful that you write those letters. And I hope that lots and lots of applicants will ask their camp directors for mm -hmm. such letters. Um, and I hope that that's the thing that many directors emphasize in their, in their recommendations because, uh, you know, she's good at physics or he's good in English. Uh, I don't know how you end up being able to distinguish one candidate from another, but this person would be a phenomenal roommate or this person knows how to be a good sport or to um, resolve a conflict that's going to erupt when the RA is not around. Mm -hmm. That's who you want to add to your class. Without a doubt. Well, well, speaking of writing, you've written a number of articles, a number of book chapters, and one excellent book, The Summer Camp Handbook, which I've got several copies and I've given to a number of our, our new families. Um, you, you've recently written an article that has sparked a little bit of a firestorm. You said it's <laughs> the, the most cited or most, most talked about article you've written, Campocalypse, Seven yeah. Predictions About Summer Youth Programs. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because um, when Harriet Lowe was the editor of Camping Magazine, if you look at the first articles that I wrote uh, 18 or 20 years ago, they were more academic. It reflected what I was doing at the time. And I was um, praised for that because a lot of camp directors would come up to me and say, thank you for not writing down to us. Uh, you know, a lot <laughs> of times we're reading articles that um, are either things we know or maybe they're things we don't know, but it's, it's not in-depth enough. And we liked that so many of your claims had research to support them. And I will say two really guiding forces, two people who have retired from ACA, Marge Scanlon, who at the time was the director of research and Harriet, who recently retired from her editorship of Camping Magazine, both encouraged every contributor to that publication to push some boundaries and, uh, you know, not be inappropriate, but be provocative. And uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, this was something that touched people and I'm really glad it did. I'm, I mean, I think that's the whole idea is to, you know, keep the conversation going and the subtext of, uh, of you know, this article, which might at first seem bleak, these, you know, Campocalypse is a pretty title. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's not a good way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was to get people to, you know, the subtext is camp is really special and let's keep it that way. Um, let's not, um, you know, allow for the influx of too much of the outside world. I, I will say, you know, my pet peeve is when people say uh, the real world, because I don't think it gets any more real than camp. So I don't make this distinction between camp and the real world, but I can talk about camp and the outside world. And I think that um, the more we can protect what we know is special about our camps, the more beneficial they can be. And, 
I tried in this article not to be too prescriptive and say, do it this way or don't do it that way, because I have done enough traveling to different camps and summer youth programs to realize that there are a lot of different ways to do camp well. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I don't pull punches when people ask me for my opinion, but I also uh, am... I try to be as gracious as possible. And the idea behind this seven predictions about youth summer or summer youth programs was to a little bit shake people up and kind of scare them about social trends and technological trends so that I could then make the point at the end of the article, if you're doing your camp well, then some of these pernicious influences on society will not sort of contaminate the camp world. And as long as we have camp, it will continue to be this countercultural vehicle for, for youth development. So um, it was, I, when I wrote it, I was in a super good mood and really happy. And, um, and, and, and I know that from some of the, <laughs> some, from some of the haters online, I, I don't think they read the last paragraph. But <laughs> that's okay because they're still talking. And that's right. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually heard it for the first time at the independent camp associations um, conference. That oh, right. Talk. And, and I remember sitting there going, wait a second, Chris, what? And then right. you, know, you wait for the punchline at the end and it all works. But all right, so let, let's jump in because you've got a lot of really fun ones. First one, cyborgs will replace humans. So when you say that, I think of Jean-Luc Picard being picked up by the Borg and turned into a cyborg. Yeah. Or Jean-Claude Van Damme in that movie, Cyborg, which kids don't watch it, a terrible movie. But <laughs> that's what, what, what are you saying when you, when you think that? Well, one of the really cool things in, medical development and also in computer science is this notion of artificial intelligence. So that's really about uh, programming computers and learn. And that really requires massive, massive data. And we, we really weren't able to uh, have anything close to artificial intelligence until recently because uh, miniaturization of uh, you know, the CPUs and computers and less expensive memory have made it possible now for, say, a program that you write to call and access data from all over the place. And we don't realize how much data we're collecting as human beings as we just go about our days. But um, when I'm saying cyborgs will replace humans, um, looking at uh, the sophistication of prosthetic devices. I'm looking at things that don't make people feel squirrely, like, oh, I have an artificial heart valve, uh, right. like my dad does. Or, um, you know, my mom has uh, had two lens replacements in her eyes, and that's not human tissue. Right. And, you know, I don't... <laughs> I, I don't think, it's gonna... think my mom is a cyborg, but uh, <laughs> mom, if you're listening, I still love you. Uh, but it's, you know... Um, if uh, part of my point here was, um, you know, we're, we're one of the sort of uh, baked in uh, characteristics of human beings, and it, it, it can be an asset, it can also be a liability, is that we 
have biases. Um, the easiest one for most people to relate to is um, you've got a first impression of someone and you can't help but not have a first impression. And, right. you know, there's nothing wrong with having it as long as you realize that that's just a little bit of data. And now you're going to collect some more before you, you know, judge them unfairly. So, okay. But um, I think that when we see bias as a liability, which it can be at times, and we get awful things like racism or sexism, um, I'm worried that there's going to be like humanism and that mm -hmm. people who are less than 100% human tissue will somehow be discriminated against. And, you know, if you go, oh, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Just wait. Good, you know, <laughs> and what are we going to do about it? In other words, how are we going to prevent, a, you know, if, if we've done a lot with uh, diminishing the intensity of, say, racism in this country, it's mm -hmm. not gone, but it's, um, let's say, better than it was mm -hmm. 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, what are we going to do to not have new isms in the future? And again, camp is a wonderful way to uh, help young people see that the best social currency is how you treat other people and not what kind of a Frisbee player they are or what kind of, you know, uh, artists they are, what the tone of their skin is, or in the future, how many artificial parts they have or don't have, but just again, how they treat others. And so. Yeah. With, one of the ones, one of the, the things, suggestions you make is that um, biases will persist. So I, I want to skip to that because you, you wrote something, I think, really wonderful. I just want to read it real quickly. Successful camps will need to teach kids how to rely on other pure humans to provide pragmatic feedback on interpersonal interactions. The once ancillary practice of debriefing an activity or interaction will now become the centerpiece of many of camps programs. Rather than offering baseball, swimming, high ropes, camps will offer de-biasing activities such as sports personship, interpersonal competition, and assessment of others. Old-fashioned activities will become the backdrop, and I think that that's the important part, not mm. the focus, of an updated program whose goal is not fun, but deep programming. I, I don't know about you, but don't you see camp as a backdrop for all the stuff that we've done so far? Yes, for sure. Um, and... Uh, you know, again, with each of these seven predictions, um, writing a bit hyperbolically um, mm -hmm. in order to be provocative on purpose. And um, so, of course, if camps are doing things right, fun will continue to be the centerpiece and what draws young people in. But as you know, what keeps them coming back is they have not just the joy of participating in activities, but these incredible connections, lifelong mm -hmm. friends, and are maybe for the first time loved for who they are, mm -hmm. you know, by their peers. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned earlier the research that Marge Scanlon uh, really spearheaded in the late 90s, early 2000s. And in that national survey, that or surveys plural that we did one of the things that we asked you know thousands of campers from day camps and over camps all different socioeconomic levels and different ethnicities um what do you love most about camp and we sat around the boardroom table going well okay well now it's going to be activities first so we got to include some of that, <laughs> and then it's going to be this other stuff but what 
was the one answer is at camp, I get to be myself. Mm-hmm. And we thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. So um, we, you know, we, we sort of, um, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit here as well, but to make a point, you know, we lure kids to camp with the promise of fun, which we deliver on. And sure. the, the, we show pictures of these great activities and, you know, beautiful facilities and all the rest. But because that, you know, that sells, um, again, as it should, I'm not saying we should change our marketing techniques, but once they're there, it's fun plus. And what we really need to do um, is make sure that our staff are well-trained in some of these, uh, you know, like the conversation that you have with your team who's kind of sulking after they've lost the game and you're walking back to, you know, if it's a day camp pickup area or, you know, they've got to change before they take a swim or maybe if it's an overnight camp, they're, they're going to take a hop in the lake or whatever it might be. Um, that 10 minute walk might be the absolute pinnacle of their week or multi-week experience because, here's a, an adult who is gently probing with open-ended questions and kind of coaching them on not explicitly, but implicitly or very gently um, some emotion regulation skills or how to think about how important effort is compared to outcome or maybe even strategizing for the next competition. But mm-hmm. when when surrogate caregivers are modeling good interpersonal skills and good self-care skills and good emotion regulation skills, it, 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 it sinks in better. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, uh, I said that sentence rather glibly before I became a parent myself. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> they actually don't listen to their parents. <laughs> I mean, I love my boys and they are good listeners, but when messages come from, uh, you know, and I've watched it happen at the camp where I worked for many, many, many years. Um, the interpersonal lessons that my wife, Simo, and I have been trying to imbue, you know, I've sort of sunk in for sure, but it it doesn't, I don't know, I feel like we don't have this transformative power that somebody who's not a family member is closer in age, has got more energy, and um, is they're in those moments, mm-hmm. you know, and I just think that's so awesome. And maybe there's a limit to what we can teach, like in a workshop or something. But I think if you do your hiring based on character rather than skill at sports or arts or whatever it might be, then you're really going to have um, a higher chance of those beautiful moments when nobody scripts it and it's not on the schedule and you can't say on your website, you know, one of the best things that we do at this camp is um, have sensitive conversations with kids after they've suffered a devastating loss, you know, whoa, whoa, (laughs) that's a downer. (laughs) (laughs) But yet that's where, see, when I think of camp, I think of it as, as connection, number one, but also there's meaning. Kids get meaning and purpose at camp and they get those, like you said, I think in the margins, it's not during the activity. It's the fun stuff in between or the hard stuff in between. That's that to me is where the camp really shines. It doesn't matter if you're residential day, you know, in a, in a school outdoors, it doesn't matter because it's the connection there that creates that meaning. 
Yeah. Yeah. I like that expression in the margins. Absolutely. So speaking of nature, um, one of your predictions is that nature will become extinct. Yeah. I'm as worried as anyone about the possibility that climate change will not decelerate, but will continue at its current pace. And then, uh, you know, I guess people in low-lying areas like Florida are worried that, you know, the ocean level is going to rise. I'm more worried um, being 250 feet above sea level here in Exeter, New Hampshire. (laughs) It's actually going to be the sort of biodiversity of the planet is going to do a level that it's not as self-sustaining as it was. And Mm -hmm. I'm not an ecologist or a biologist, but you know, that's my fear based on what I'm reading. And one of the things, as you said, camps can happen in a lot of different environments, but uh, so many of them are in beautiful natural environment and, and all of them can uh, imbue kids with a sense of responsibility for the planet and environmental stewardship. And to use your expression, I mean, it can happen in the margin. It's not, you don't have to look at the schedule and say, well, there's, you know, there's football and swimming and then, oh, Third period is recycling. That doesn't sound very fun, but they're, <laughs> but they're always recycling. So um, letting them see that happen or at Belknap, we drastically cut the number of dumpsters that we were filling and the associated cost by mm-hmm. composting our edible food waste, bringing it to a local pig farm. And we also brought kids to the farm and let them see, okay, well, you know, this is not particularly glamorous because we have nine, you know, 50 gallon buckets of slop, but now what happens to it? And the woman who's the farmer um, at Haynes Hill Farm in in Wolfboro was phenomenal at explaining to kids, uh, well, you know, we're doing this and then we're doing that. And she talked to them about crop rotation and what was the difference between organic farming and non-organic farming. And, uh, Again, I, I, I think that there are so many ways that kids can touch nature, but if, uh, if they can't um, because we're not responsible enough with the planet, then I think that um, we're going to lose something really important that is, uh, regardless of any religious or spiritual beliefs or not, that a person has uh, a kind of fundamental connection that all human beings have you mentioned the interpersonal connections and obviously those are paramount, but also a connection with something bigger than you or any of your friends or your parents or, um, you know, and that's a lot about the place and um, what is wonderful and magical about the biodiversity that we have. And, you know, at the risk of sounding sort of too, I don't know, crystals and incense or something. I, I, you know, I, I do feel like that being in nature is uh, such an important human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think it's, it's it primal. It's primal. That's exactly the word. And when I was tasked with, after being the waterfront director for years at Belknap, trying to breathe new life into our nature program, I, you know, my first response was, no, I can't do that. I don't have a degree in biology or, (laughs) and the director said, you know, actually we're not so interested in having kids memorize the names of flora and fauna uh, or constellations. They can do that, but 
we're wanting them to just be in nature. And so I said, well, you know, I can do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite activities the first year that I ran the nature program was to take a dozen kids far enough into the woods that we can't see any more buildings and mm-hmm. make a circle where everyone's facing outward and ask everyone to take, you know, 50 steps and wherever they end up, you know, like we're sort of the spokes of a wheel, sit down, close their eyes for five minutes and just listen and then open their eyes and just look from where they're sitting. Amazing. Um, yeah. And kids are like, what if my bucket's wet? Or, you know, what if a spider <laughs> crawls on me? And you're like, I hope it does. Cause that's a different experience than you're having now. <laughs> and then the, the third five minute, um, they had an index card, little golf pencil and ask them to draw what they see. And you can imagine what the initial objections were like, oh, I'm not a good drawer. I can't, you know, well, can we draw anything? And they're still in school mode, right? They right. still, I mean, all these questions are questions about how I'm going to be evaluated when this is over. I'm like, I, you know, you could turn over the underside of a leaf and just see a bunch of dirt. Draw that. They're like, oh, it really can be anything? Yeah. So like, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's liberating. And then, you know, so that was 15 or 20 minutes. And, you know, then people come back and now we're in a circle facing each other. Go around and you can show your card if you want, but just talk about what you heard, talk about what you smelled, talk about what you felt and what you saw and if you want what you drew. And, you know, whether kids are from an urban setting or a rural setting, mm-hmm. Cole, this is a brand new experience for them. And suddenly they want to spend more time outside. So we, ha- I like electronic technology, We're using it now to have a mm-hmm. cool conversation over a distance of many miles. And it has its place. And, um, I don't want electronic technology to fully eclipse mm-hmm. all the other cool stuff that we have. So that was my point. Absolutely. Well, and that leads very clear. I, I want to do one more, then I want to get to your, your eighth paragraph or your eighth prediction, which no one seems to want to read, which is the important <laughs> one. Um, but you say that minds will unhinge. Um, and in this, at one point, you say that the side effect of kids not experiencing boredom uh, will be short attention spans and low frustration tolerance. Don't you think we're already there? Yeah. Um, and it's, we, yes. Um, I think it can get worse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like, um, we have a tremendous attentional capacity Mm. and if it's not exercised, then it's, going to atrophy. And when I say minds will unhinge, that's sort of what I mean. We're going to not feel as grounded or be able to cope with a variety of different experiences. I even feel it in myself. I mean, I'm not trying to be um, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of arrogant in any of this. And I've felt myself when I, you know, I get to the end of a long flight and I realize that I, I forgot to turn off cellular data on my phone. So for six hours, you know, the phone's been begging for a signal and not finding it and the oh. battery's completely used up. And um, I am, you know, we're sitting on the tarmac for the, what, three, four, five minutes that it takes to taxi to the gate. And I'm exquisitely bored, right? Like <laughs> I'm not going to read the in-flight magazine because it's just a big ad and but I want my phone and I, I'm like reaching into my pocket and just instinctively. And I don't like when I get to that place mm. and I, 
you know, I'm aware of in, in much more important kinds of settings that it's harder for me to sit still and just listen. Fortunately, I have a job as a clinical psychologist where a lot of it is to sit and listen, mm -hmm. but I was never a better clinical psychologist than the week I had laryngitis because, <laughs> I mean, as you can tell, I like to talk and I've got a lot on my mind and I'm happy to share it, but I just don't want us to have uh, a loss of ourselves. And I've been listening to podcasts lately on how important things like meditation are. And there are a hundred different ways to meditate, but they all share something in common, which is uh, you're not usually doing something physical. Um, you're not usually making noise. And in a quiet, mindful state, uh, you know, people quickly realize, wow, they're, they're still spinning. I mean, it's sort of like um, when you're repairing your bicycle and you, mm -hmm. um, see whether the chain is working. You've got to, you know, the wheels lifted up and that wheel is still spinning. And I feel that way inside sometimes. And I, I know how important it is that we've got quiet time in a camp that might look like rest hour. It might look like um, places at camp where kids can just um, read. I mean, I love when I see a camp benches and hammocks and mm -hmm. sometimes it's a place for one kid to sit. Sometimes it's for a group, but um, you know, you can have a camp library for $0. Just ask parents to donate books that their kids aren't reading more, you know, bring them to camp, but they're, you know, the mind is like a muscle. It's got to be exercised in different ways. And I don't want us to lose our capacity to, um, reflect and not have really anything going on. All these meditative traditions, you're really trying to uh, have nothing in your mind. And mm -hmm. I, I've never achieved that, but um, <laughs> I, I think I've come closer uh, than I would if I hadn't tried to meditate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really um, important that we do that so that we are grounded and so that we can tolerate a range of different experiences rather than being dependent on uh, just constant influx of, of information. Awesome. All right. Well, I know, you know, our, our fire is getting a little bit lower, so I really want to talk about this last one. Okay. Number eight, one of your campers will change the world. Yeah. It's an expression of my, um, optimism about all of this. So if predictions one through seven are intentionally polemical to get people thinking about how to shore up their wonderful camp programs um, and protect them against uh, some of these pernicious forces, um, I want everyone to remember that every, every year, every summer, if you're a summer program, we are sending young people back out into the world with a sense of hope and optimism, with better social and emotional skills than they had when they arrived at mm -hmm. camp. And we should feel really, really good about that. And it's not just about um, building a fortress around our camps so that uh, these kind of influences that if they became dominant would take away the power of camps to 
be forces for positive youth development. Um, we got to do some of that, but we also need to know that every at the end of every day or closing day or season, um, we're sending these beautiful kids out into the world with uh, not just a fresh set of skills, but a new sense of responsibility to other people. And I hope that that's something that, um, you know, all camp directors remember. It can be a lonely quiet after a session or a season ends. And one of the best things to remind yourself in those moments is, you know, now the even more important part of my job is happening. And that is that, um, you know, these kids are sprinkled out in the outside world, having some small influences on other people that are super positive and, you know, kids learn a lot from each other. And, um, I said at the beginning of our time together this evening that it was my friend who encouraged me to come to camp and said, you got to trust me. This is not like any other experience you've had. And hopefully that happens lots and lots. And for the kids who don't have the good fortune to go to camp, they're going to meet somebody that went to camp. But I, I think that, you know, after you and I um, are retired or long after we've left the world, there are going to be the legacies that, you know, we've left behind and our successors are cultivating. And so that was really kind of my message in this, is this last one. And I also just want to point out one other thing, which I found fascinating. Um, and that is that, um, you know, Socrates's student Plato is alleged to have, you know, said writing is a step backward for truth. I, I did write this whole article with a recognition that, the younger the reader is, the more they might feel like this old guy is just reiterating <laughs> what every old person said. <laughs> you know, this younger generation doesn't know. And I wanted to say the opposite, which is this younger generation does know. And, mm -hmm. and, and we, you know, you and I and our colleagues get to take some credit for that. And hopefully they'll be even better you know, leaders and parents than we were. Absolutely. Well, you know, what I read it as inherently a very positive thing, because you keep coming back to something, an institution that has lasted for, you know, almost now 200 years yeah. in the United States that really is creating ripples in the outer world, not the real world, like you said, but the outer world. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where the power and the meaning can come for the young staff members that give up their summers to do this where the kids who don't even know they're getting these lessons leave and say, Oh, wait a second, because of camp, I, I can do this now. And I didn't even realize it, you know, four or five, six years ago. Now I'm in college or now I'm a young adult. Now I'm a parent. Now I get it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that that's, that's to me is the, it's the article allows us to think about things that could go wrong and are certainly in some of those situations going in that direction, but that there is a very powerful, resource to use to help counteract a lot of that and to use the technological advances in the positive ways rather than the negative. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I'm glad that that's how you read it. And it's certainly um, a thrill for me to join you to talk about it. Awesome. Well, Dr. Thurber, thank you so much for, for spending the time around the campfire with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to know about the South Portland connection too. I love it. Yeah. Each other at the conference. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take care. All right, Cole. Thanks so much. Take good care. <laughs> that was so much fun for me. Dr. Thurber raises a number of really interesting points and ideas. Technology is certainly changing our society and culture. 
it's having a major effect on our children who are digital natives. We fossils, and by that I mean those who can remember life before the internet and iPhone and social media, we need to meet them, these digital natives, where they are and use our experience to help them grow. And at the same time, we also have to learn from them because they know a lot about this stuff too. It won't surprise you when I say that camp is an amazing institution and one that dovetails perfectly to the academic school year. Dr. Thurber said it best when he said that camp is an exquisitely important place in the holistic education of young people. By living and playing and working together, all under the supportive eyes of their near-peer counselors, our young people get to grow and develop at camp in ways that will help them thrive in the outer world. Are there challenges for summer camps coming up? Of course. Are these challenges surmountable? I totally believe so. I agree with Dr. Thurber in that rather than walling ourselves off within camp and hoarding all that learning and that fun that we enjoy, we need to use it rather as a recharging station and a launching pad for the humans of the future. If camp continues to have a message of hope and optimism and meaning, I have a feeling the future will be a really bright one cyborgs and all. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you found this or other podcasts useful, I hope you'll leave a rating or review in whichever podcast service you're using. The more positive reviews we get, the more these ideas will spread. And I hope you'll share this podcast with a friend. Our campfire circle is big enough for everyone. Until we speak again, go out there and do good and be good. Thanks again to our friends at Scope for sponsoring the Campfire Conversation podcast. Scope stands for Summer Camp Opportunities Promote Education. They provide children from underserved communities with life-changing opportunities through the experience of summer camp. Scope campers benefit from a positive, safe, and healthy environment led by excellent role models who give them the chance to develop their full potential. We both believe that summer camp reinforces what children learn in school and enhances overall academic learning. If you would like to help give some wonderful children a life-changing experience, I hope you'll join me in supporting Scope. You can find them online at scopeusa.org and on social media at support scope.